1: welcome to useful idiots i'm matt taibbi
2: and i'm katie helper
1: how are you doing katie
2: i'm okay um i'm okay i had to walk across some snow today which for me is like a big challenging Yeah. yeah i mean it's like probably what like 10 15 feet that i walked. if you had seen me it would have definitely looked like one of those like um a reality tv show challenge Where I'm kind of like figuring out where to put my foot. I had to use a broom to like, you know, do some sweeping and and skirting off of snow and also staking into the ground.
1: Wow. That sounds really complicated. It was. In news this week, I guess the impeachment's going on, right? Do we care about that?
2: How much does it cost? You know, I tweeted that out. I don't know what the response was, but I'm wondering what it costs. I hope it costs costs a hundred billion dollars. Whatever they're doing, whatever they're spending on impeachment, they should pause it and uh, give all that money to people without means testing it. And then if they have anything left, they can throw a little impeachment party.
1: Right, yes, that would be good. Well, I mean, look, I think what they're trying to do is establish a decorative baseline for what American government looks like going forward. So (laughs) troops on the streets in Washington, like show trials of outgoing leaders, I think it's 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 a, it's a necessary part of our of the uh, decor yeah. going forward. Yeah. Um, so let's just jump right into the four food groups. Oh. Um, w- w- what do we have for Democrats suck this week?
2: I mean, there's so much. But the whole point of this is to not do this totally serious policy stuff and kind of be more entertaining. But also, this is a great example because it does both, I would say. So, of course, I'm talking about friend of the show, dear friend of the show, Neera Tandon.
1: Oh, my goodness. I'm doing. Dear- OK, but go ahead. Yeah.
2: Uh, well, you're, you're suck, right?
1: Yes, but I'm, I'm, I'm do- i did something just to tweak you, but go ahead.
2: Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's, yeah. that's, that's what Nira does every day, basically. Yeah. Um, so Nira Tandon is of course being considered for the OMB, the Manage- Office of Management and, and Budget. Budget. If we could just play the clip that I put in, Dan. She was the director of uh, Center for American Progress, and we've reviewed this before. The really important things about her is that she's just awful on policy. Uh, there's all this video of her saying that she was excited about cutting social security Um, putting everything on the table. We know from WikiLeaks, she said, don't sweat the $15 an hour stuff. She said um, that she wanted the US to take the oil from Libya Mm -hmm. uh, so that we could pay for programs here um, and so we could avoid deficits. Um, And then she spent the entire primary asking Bernie Sanders to disavow and repudiate any single person who ever said anything obnoxious on the Mm. internets who claim to be a Sanders supporter, not talking about people who worked for him, not talking about high profile supporters. We're talking about randos online. But the reason that um, that this is also frustrating is because and I know this doesn't really matter, but she is a toxic tweeter herself. She's been scrubbing her tweets. She's been deleting them. And now she's not an idiot. She's not going to tweet vile, misogynist, homophobic, racist, anti-Semitic things. But some of her best friends do. And we'll get to that, actually. The irony is she has, she has to apologize for tweeting certain things about Republicans, basically. So anyway, if we could just show this clip, though, because I think this is a great snapshot of of Tandon and the Republicans.
3: I have to tell you, I'm very disturbed about your personal comments about people. Um, and it's not just one or two. I think you deleted about a 1,000 tweets. And it wasn't just about Republicans. And I don't mind disagreements in policy. I think that's great. I love the dialectic, but the comments were perfect.
1: <laughs> I love the dialectic. I mean, that's a
3: t-shirt. You call Senator Sanders everything but an ignorant slut.
0: That is not. That is not true. Senator.
3: And when when you when you <laughs> said these things, did you mean them? I wouldn't say they
0: Senator, I have to say,
3: yeah, I didn't watch it regret- before.
0: My comments. understand that. But and when I you said them, did them. you
3: mean them? I understand <laughs> you, you, you've taken them back, but did you mean them?
0: I'd say the discourse over the last four years on the all discourse. sides.
3: The discourse. Been the dialect. Totally I'm asking about yours. Did both you sides, both them? sides. Both sides. All left. I she really used that feel term. badly
0: about them, Senator. Did you mean them? <laughs> I feel badly about them. Did you mean them
3: when you said them?
0: I mean, I would say social media is a is is. I've Did you mean them when you discourse. said them? I feel terribly about them.
3: Did you mean them when you said them, or were you not telling the truth?
0: I I I mean, I feel badly. I look back at them. I I said them. I feel badly about them. I deleted tweets over. Are you saying days.
3: that because you want to be confirmed?
0: No, I felt badly about
3: them. <laughs> Did you mean them when you said them?
2: I love this, this like guy. guy,
0: Senator. I, I, I must have meant them, but I really regret them.
3: I want the record to reflect that I did not call Senator Sanders an ignorant slut. <laughs> <laughs> okay. thank
2: you. Keep watching. Uh, I don't
3: know how I should take that, Senator Kennedy, but uh, Senator King. <laughs> um, thank you, Mr. Chair, uh, and to Ms. Tanning congratulations. I have six questions that are How great is that?
2: Probably- and that was John Kennedy, by the way. Yes, yeah, so my, my
1: first thought is that uh, somebody at home was playing a, a drinking game, or he had a bet, like he, like he gets a grand if he says ignorance slut on the on the floor of the Senate or something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe every time he says it.
2: I like when she's like, she does this funny <laughs> look at the camera. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah. I actually found it relatable. She's like, okay, she's like, I didn't not, I did not say that. This is funny. I think I feel badly. I feel badly. I I guess I, I must have believed it when I said it, but I feel badly. Okay. First of she w- all, she wins
1: that exchange, though. I'm sorry. I know.
2: That's what I hate. Well, no, this guy, like, she definitely wins the Lindsey Graham exchange. Because... She wins all of
1: them because she's going to be confirmed anyway. Oh, she's well, yeah, but she, she doesn't win, so win. I don't she have she to answer you. I yeah. don't have to answer you because. Can we just um, look
2: at that one? Her expression once more. Dan, sorry. It's when she says to him. She was,
1: she was looking for help somewhere yeah. for like a cue card or something. But yeah. it's not there. It's not there. Yeah. She realizes it's not there so she quickly reorients herself and just maybe looks that's,
2: yeah or maybe that's her play. maybe she th- when she thinks about hillary clinton she looks up to the left and it's like wwhj what would hillary do
1: right yeah, yeah. at home in her office there's right, a picture pho- yeah there's a picture a Madonna. of hillary yeah, a Madonna, Madonna, hillary. yeah. <laughs> right.
2: and so people who are just listening to this and can't see it she's yeah her eyes are kind of up and left a Great shot. Well, why don't you do yours? Because I that's yeah, my I mean,
1: I've got like a really merge
2: them, yeah.
1: I, I've got a really short Republican yeah. sec, just, a, just an observation that, and I, I did it because I, I thought you would be kind of psychically annoyed at me kind of taking near a side. Yeah. In, in a and the, the story here, Dan, if we could just see it quickly, GOP senators discover their discomfort with intemperate tweets. Senator Rob Portman of Ohio seemed preoccupied with Tandon's social media presence, and then there's a quote. I'm concerned that your personal attacks about specific senators will make it difficult for you to work for uh, work with them. Uh, Adding that her missives contribute to incivility and division in our public life. Obviously, the irony here is you just had a president who spent basically his entire life uh, mean tweeting people. And now you're upset about Neera Tanden, who is maybe the only person uh, on Twitter who could compete with Trump for social media obnoxiousness, but she's not even in Trump's league.
2: No, she's not. The difference is she pretends to not be, you know, he's the guy who breaks with decorum, right? And the Dems are the ones who who um, trade in, you know, decency and civility. That's their language in theory. Right. Um, Right.
1: Also, she's never, I don't don't think, ever actually been funny organically.
2: No, she hasn't.
1: Whereas Trump uh, has been.
2: Right, he has, yeah. Although mostly it's unintentional. Mostly not. She's yeah. pretty funny when she talks about the Russians and how how you know, even even like Chris Cuomo was like, "Come on, Nira, give me a break," because he was asking about something with Clinton. She's like, "Well, you're doing the Russians' work for them." <laughs> and he was like, Nero, come on, Nira, um, you know you're like on the right side of history when Chris Cuomo calls you out and you're bullshit." But yeah, um,
1: she, she's the last Japanese soldier who still thinks the war is on, basically, right on the island. Yeah, island, yeah. Yeah, I mean exactly. Bernie
2: has to confirm Bernie's going to confirm her by the time you've seen this Bernie will have confirmed her
1: and, and I have to I have to give her props for the ultimate fuck you from her which is that she con- con- congratulated Sanders on his leadership as she was in the middle of the confirmation process like she she's now won so decisively this power battle that she can she can afford to pretend to be gracious right uh which is which is is a pretty humiliating spectacle for for uh those of us who are more on the bernie side of this whole thing so i mean i have to i have to give her credit for for, for being such a good tw- troll sure for yeah for twisting the knife in because uh, it was it was already trolling that they nominated her right and yep. then for her to, to to do that it's it's right. impressive all the way down the line yeah.
2: could you just call up the thread i put in there dan i just want to show some
1: because we haven't spent enough time on, on Well, Well, I just want
2: to get this out. I'm sorry. I've talked about this. but I just want to show some of the receipts of the people that she, again, I kind of go through all the times that she's she's called out Sanders and his Bernie bros, right? But there's Jeremy on the left. There's Nira in the middle. Okay. And then here she is on Twitter saying, I'm really thankful for my friends on this crazy website. Sometimes it's not the easiest place to hang out, but I'm really grateful to my friends who have made it easier. And often they've made it actually pretty great. Thank you. Hashtag Army. Then Jeremy, the guy in that photo, said something, it's been deleted. No, he was suspended for his toxic tweeting. And whatever that is, she says, Jeremy, you're a treasure. Thank you. Okay, so now if we could proceed to the next exhibit C. So here's a tweet from Jeremy, just to get a sense of how Nero rolls. Fuck him to hell. Bernie would have won. Bernie would have choked on my dick. Okay, next please. Uh here's another tweet from Jeremy. I just want to say something that's been bubbling up inside me and holding me back. I fucking hate Bernie Sanders with every fiber of my being, and I will not be happy until he has suffered greatly (laughs) for what he unleashed. Okay, next. Can we scroll down to the next thing? Where do you go from there? Uh, Okay. Now, and here's another tweet from him. I will vote for the primary candidate that leaps across the debate stage, bites (laughs) off Bernie's wagging finger, lifts it up like a trophy, and then throws it to the audience like a wedding bouquet. Uh, Okay. Next photo, please. In that. In this one. Uh, bonus points if they pull out that awful <laughs> tuft of hair, too. OK. And next one. And this again, this is near Tannen's friend with whom she hangs out. We have photos and she calls him a treasure and part of her army. Now, here's Jeremy Istanbul again. Now, th- for context, this is his response to Linda Sarsour, who is a Palestinian-American, Muslim-American activist organizer, does great organizing. And she had tweeted out after the shooting of the Pittsburgh synagogue, she tweeted out her condolences. So. How does Jeremy respond to her tweeting out her condolences? He uh, quote tweets it uh, because she says, whomever did this is a monster. Our places of worship should be sanctuaries. We should be shall be free and safe to practice our faith in this country without fear of being targeted. And Jeremy responds to that. Oh, look, it's Linda Sarsour, pretending she wouldn't be down to plan something like what happened today. So he's calling this woman. Um, basically a, a terrorist sympathizer or terrorist conspirator would be uh, an anti-Semite. And then what's the next one in here? OK, so here's this. Now, I, I would be remiss if I didn't also point out some other people okay. that Nira okay. rolls with. <laughs>
0: right. Just
2: just just let me hold on. You'll get on like this. OK. Mr. Weeks, she called him a friend. She wished him happy birthday. And just really quickly, here's some of the things that he said about Bernie. He's a fake fucking Jew. Okay. Um, yeah. But he also said um, Bernie Sanders can.
1: Bernie's going to. He's doing a lot of dick sucking. His mouth looked
2: stink. So I will pass. Fuck him. He also said his heart needs to stop beating right about now. (laughs) And then, she's nice. And then, can you. uh, uh, We got to read this one the Medicare for all, his Medicare for all statement. Uh, and if I can add, normally Medicare for All Guy is the type that says, who can suck it to get hard? No. What lube do you use? Not spit. What's my name? Not daddy. Damn, you're tight. Wrong. Whole fool. I mean, this is the Medicare for All Guy. I'll talk and don't know how to work it. Okay. <laughs>
1: I don't totally understand that. but Me neither. I neither.
2: Yeah. And then, as you can see, he sells stuff like, fuck Bernie. Uh, he has a photo of himself. He he would ride around that says, fuck Bernie Sanders. He's look. I think that's in front of Grace Church or something. But he's on a on a light. What does that call a stoplight? And then last person. And this is just a sampling, but eclectic brother. And this one, I I should in full disclosure, I should uh, disclose that I have a special relationship with him. But first, let's show how how chummy he is with Nira, if we can. So uh, Nira thanks the resistance and eclectic brother says, I'm thankful for feisty, determined women who run think tanks that help Democrats pass progressive legislation. And she says, I'm definitely thankful for your cold fury and all you've done to fight for the resistance. And then the next one, then let's let's look at how he the types of things he tweets. Suck my dick, you square headed fuck. My point was valid and you're just some sniveling bitch scram. And then the next one, because you're going to see a motif. Yeah, right there. Thank you. Uh, mission accomplished. Now go fuck yourself with Krusty the Clown, Senator from Vermont's dick. Next, please. Ooh,
1: that's complicated. You got, you got a, you got to Uh huh. Go ahead.
2: Suck my dick and choke on my nuts, Bernie, bro. Was that classy enough for your little musty ass? Okay, next, please. Uh, and then this is again. I, I have a personal relationship with the guy. He tweeted at me. Oh, go fuck yourself with Jen Cougar's dick, Katie, and take your man baby troll swarm with you. You and Bernie ain't never been shit. Then I asked him if he still, you know, stood by that statement. But so
1: whose dick is where now?
2: Well, there are a lot of dicks going around. There's his dick, there's Bernie's dick, and then there's Jank Uger's dick. Um, Now these two lots of people to to...
1: two places.
2: Well, in his dick is supposed to be in people's mouths.
1: Okay, all right.
2: Uh, Bernie's dick is supposed to be in people's mouths, and I'm supposed to be doing something with Jank Uger's dick. I see. Um, Okay which really is offensive to Jank um, because he's uh, taking away his agency and right. perpetuating rape culture right. and uh, is Turkophobic. So uh, yes, Katie Halberg, <laughs> go fuck yourself with Jank Uygur's dick. I never stuttered then or now leave Bernie's crack alone. Jeez. Also stutterphobic. The president is a stutterer. Uh, it's really he, so eclectic brother owes him an apology. And then the last tweet of his that I highlighted was I'm not sure this is just warms the heart uh, had an eight or nine year old girl with down syndrome stopped by the station to sell Girl Scout cookies to the watch commander. What a slut. What? Yeah.
1: It's like a Hieronymus Bosch painting of dicks. Yeah.
2: It is. Yeah, it's all dicks all the time.
1: Yeah. You're listening that's...
2: to 1010 10 dicks. <laughs> it's Why just really confusing.
1: You know, yeah. Bernie with his tuft of hair being pulled out while he's choking on a in his finger And a being... finger
2: being cut off, yeah. Yeah,
1: no. It's that's 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 impressive. Uh... And now
2: I don't want to be like guilt by association and smearing, but like or you are your friends. No, but the point is she extrapolates every single person who says anything who's a random online who either does support Sanders, claims to support Sanders, is proof of this narrative of the Bernie bro. And yet she is f- never condemns these people. So I, I want to ask you, Nira, do you do you do you stand by your friends who have quoted that Bernie needs to um have his heart stop beating, is a fake fucking Jew, needs his finger cut off, his dick sucked by him, whoever um Wait, let me guy, let me answer that question for you. Matt <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> looked up left. Yeah, I feel badly. I feel badly about. I
1: feel. Ba- the I feel badly about all those dicks. Yeah, uh, and the choking and yeah. the finger and the look, I do hair. not
2: look. I think the discourse on both sides was a got out of hand. <laughs> a lot of dicks were flying around. A lot of fingers were cut off. Dicks, fingers thrown around in the air. Both sides threw dicks and fingers. <laughs> That's and we need to come together. And that's what I hope to bring to this is a unity between uh, dicks and fingers of all (laughs) sizes and colors and kinds, a bouquet of of dicks and fingers.
1: Yeah. She feels that she feels badly about
2: that. I feel badly about having, uh, but I will put them together in a bouquet. In fact, um, if you'll accept me as um, uh, OMB chair, Uh, My first act will be to put a bouquet of dicks and fingers in the Oval Office for the president, Joe Biden, to symbolize the the resistance and civility. I like that. We need to
1: marry Biden 2020, a, a, a bouquet of dicks. Raised in a trailer park with no clear path to success, kicked out of high school multiple times and faced with becoming a father in his teens, Jason Waller is the definition of a true underdog. After hearing the words no or you can't too many times, he unleashed the power within to start three successful companies with his most... Recent venture, Power Home Solar, skyrocketing on a path to becoming a billion-dollar enterprise. Join us as Waller, a four-time Entrepreneur of the Year winner, uh, shares motivational tips and inspiring stories and business-building lessons from the ground up. He shares his life experiences and that of his high-profile guests to help others better themselves. As Waller will tell you, there is no elevator to success. That climb only happens one step at a time. Let every True Underdog podcast be that step that elevates you. Scared money won't make money. Mm. Learn about failure. Learn about entrepreneurship. Learn about never quitting or making excuses. It's real. It's raw. It's motivational. Check out True Underdog Podcasts at trueunderdog.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. Well, as it happens, I think we have a thematically similar story to do for... Oh my that, God, yes. For isn't that... Uh, isn't yeah. that weird, right?
2: So let's go to now, let's go to Sweden, where uh, a, a giant snow penis has appeared. A three meter high snow penis appeared at a roundabout just outside Boris after heavy snowfall on Tuesday, causing both giggles and safety concerns, which really sums up a penis. The roundabout <laughs> where someone. Safety concerns and giggles. Yeah, that's what I meant. Anyway, the roundabout where someone took the opportunity to build the huge creation is located at the exit from Highway 40 towards Zahu and Amazon. According to motorist Perla it has become something of a tradition for such a snow sculpture to appear at the roundabout. This is the fifth year it's been there, and I and I think it's a fun thing. I love uh, how but, this
1: was supposed to be a politics podcast, but we've done more like penis-related <laughs> content than anybody.
2: Well, just for day today. Yeah, yeah. Um, Helen <laughs> <laughs> on. Helena Alcinius, the CEO of Boras TME, a municipal company which markets Boras, laughed when she saw pictures of the creation. I'm a little impressed because it is not something that you build on the blink of an eye in the blink of an eye, and it must be site built. It looks well made. I hope they had fun when they did it. But as it stands in the middle of the roundabout, the snow penis poses a safety. Yeah risk according to Swedish Transport Administration. There must be no signs of artistic expressions that disturb the traffic environment and safety. If we find so during the inspections, we will remove it. It often ends up in a warehouse with one of our subcontractors, Sofia Lindahl, press communicator at the Swedish Transport Administration told <laughs> Gottesbürger Posten. Even things that are made of natural materials can have a detrimental effect on road safety our contact center has received calls that there is something in the roundabout that may affect traffic safety. Now it is up to the contractor to possibly fix this, but the forces of the weather may also have done their part during the day, Sophia Lindell added. So it seems the three meter high snow penis will not be something standing tall for long. There is good detail work on this too.
1: Yeah. I mean, how do you, is it? Bane work. Right. Do you, do you, is it with, How did they do that? Yeah, like do you put use water to freeze it or like
2: Do they maybe they like I think what they do is they get a mold, a plastic like a molding, a mold?
1: Like the plaster casters. What's that? Back in the sixties they groupies used to make plaster casts of the erect penises of rock stars. Oh wow. So that was fun. Yeah. Well I feel kinda like left out. Uh you know, all I got for isn't that terrible is a is an environmental
2: catastrophe. Yeah, but it hits close to
1: home. Yeah. So basically, the the, this is a a climate crisis story. Planet's getting hotter. Water's getting warmer. Great white sharks uh, need to raise their young sharks in uh, different waters. So they're moving closer to shore. So our, our lives are being more and more filled with great white sharks. As a result, they're eating otters. Uh, so I picked this story because I, I thought maybe Katie would be upset by this. So young great white sharks eat fish before moving on to seals and sea lions as adults. Awesome. Uh, the young white sharks are thought to kill the sea otters as they learn to hunt mammals. Uh, sea otters are a threatened species and very important for the California coast as, the, as ecosystem engineers, both in kelp forest and seagrass meadows. Uh, one particularly warm part of Monterey Bay attracts both people and the young sharks. It's definitely become an issue locally, uh, and there's been a concern for public safety. Uh, even if they're just juveniles six or seven feet long and supposedly eating fish, it definitely arouses uh, your awareness. Uh, so yeah, I mean, with all the other terrible stuff that's happening in um, 2020 2021 just more great white sharks.
2: Yeah, and I want to just say that I'm glad you you raised this story because it's very important, but. Uh, we find something that we find in a lot of coverage of sharks, which is just rampant shark apologia. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a quote uh, in this Garden artic- a Guardian article that you're reading from. Um, they quote Kyle Van Houten of the Monterey Bay Aquarium in California. Um, and he says, uh, you know, white sharks aren't just another species. They're an apex predator and all eyes are on them in the ocean. What we've detected here is just a harbinger of broader, of much broader patterns, which is true. And I'm glad that he calls out sharks as the predators that they are. Um, but then he goes full. It's almost like right as after he builds trust with us and we think he's a trustworthy source who's not engaging in par, park, park apology, Sh- shark, shark-aganda. Yeah, shark-aganda. shark, yeah, shark, agenda, shark apology. He sneaks in the sharks are not the problem. Climate change is the problem. The sharks are telling us that the ocean is changing and that it's now time for us to do something about it No. Climate change is a problem and so are sharks. I think he's trying to
1: say that both sides are to blame.
2: He's doing the both sides and <laughs> which goes back to near Tandon doing the both sides. It's a callback, particularly attention grabbing of the mass movement of marine life that's happening off of our coast. This is a professor, part of the research team right now involving everything from mangroves to cod. Climate change is scrambling our ocean ecosystems, and sometimes it produces surprises with a whole lot of teeth. So just take the T. Te- Why don't you remove? That was nice. The teeth. That was a good metaphor. It Was a good yeah.
1: Give him Thomas Friedman's job. Yes. And this brings us to our last point, just really quickly. It turns out we made a lot of fun of of Thomas Friedman last week, for a an involved metaphor about GameStop that involved magical hyenas that added to the size of the of the carcasses of wildebeest uh, by fifty percent after they ate them. And we laughed about it and, and joked about it and and uh, and we were gloating, basically. And yet, uh, our producer, uh, Dan Halpern uh, sort of was looking at an old story of mine on the subject of naked short selling, which did come up in this story, and found that I, too, used a hyena metaphor it's so different. Uh, that wasn't quite as maladroit, I would, I would hope, but uh, it was still pretty bad. It, w- it was pretty involved. Dan, do you have it?
4: Or... I do. And I found this because people on some of the Reddit finance subreddit forums found this article of yours and were really excited about it. They were learning a lot about short selling and, and it, was, it was informative to them. So I just took a quick look. And so the line that stuck out to me on this score was, what really happened to Bear and Lehman is that an economic drought temporarily left the hyenas without any more middle-class victims. And so they started eating each other using the exact same schemes that they had been using for years to fleece the rest of the country. Ooh, that's a mixed metaphor with the fleece. fleece Yeah, Yeah. good. I I just got that one on this read.
2: Lamb, little lamb, innocent lamb, right? And and
4: then to finish the graph, and in the forensic footprint left by those kills, we can see for the first time exactly how the scam worked and how completely even the government regulators who are supposed to protect us have given up trying to stop it.
1: No, that's bad. I should have left the footprint out of there nah, too. Nah, it's
2: okay, don't beat yourself up. And look, if anything, Friedman makes you look like a, a genius.
1: No, no, that's that was a pretty Friedman-esque passage, I gotta say. No, it say. wasn't, because
2: there was logic to it. No,
1: not, not too much. Look, I,
2: right, I, Matt,
1: think I think we gotta, we were talking about this off the air, but it's possible that Tom and I are like half-brothers maybe. Yeah.
2: Do a little back, do a little flashback effect and put that clip in there.
1: I mean, it feels feels a little bit like the movie Twins,
2: a lot like it,
1: right? You know, maybe we have to get together and meet, and maybe we both have repressed memories, you know,
2: of being maybe you, oh my god, maybe you guys were like traded off in a taxi in Ramallah.
1: Oh, right, yes, exactly. We got switched, that's why he
2: always starts, yeah, that's where the switcheroo took place. That's why he always starts his. Well, we every were time on he our starts way. a panel. So I was talking to a cab driver in Beirut.
1: He's flashing that's back. His,
2: yes, and that's his way of reaching out. He was looking for the other person who remembers pivotal that's moments right. in that's Middle right. Eastern cabs. That's right. That it's could be the name of your movie about your lives.
1: Middle Eastern cabs?
2: Tib- yeah, or trading places in Middle Eastern Taxi cabs. Brothers. Taxi Brothers. Yeah. Taxi, Taxi Brothers. Taxi Bros. Taxi Bros. Ta-
1: <laughs> Taxi Bros. That's right. Yeah, we have to meet and... Well, we won't get along at first, right? Right. Conflict, then it'll be Conflict, chaos,
2: chaos. Resolution,
4: climax. Right. right. It's it's Flashbacks, perfect. Yeah. Busy yeah. cities. Right.
2: Yeah. Oh my so god. Be working
4: on a piece, and and you'll be in like a hotel somewhere in Egypt, and you'll be hearing him mutter to himself as he's trying to get the perfect analogy, and you're so mad at him because you're stuck there, but you can't help yourself. You have to help him work on it. And then, oh. and then you then you make it a little better, and then in that scene, you guys start finishing each other's sentences. Exactly. exactly. So
2: wait, they're yeah. at a journalist retreat, a journalism retreat, or they're like covering something, and they're in adjacent rooms. And Matt hears him, and uh, then he knocks. That's the Hollywood
4: part. They, yeah, they're stuck in the same hotel room in Egypt for some right. reason. That's the Hollywood right. part. Right.
2: Right. I know, no, but wait, I'm just wait. trying to flesh it out. Like
1: in in the early part of the scene, where both. We're both annoyed with each other, but glancing at each other, and we realize that we're typing with the same mannerisms. Yeah. Right. And and we're reaching for our coffee at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, a yeah. hyena,
2: you have a hyena gait <laughs> and you have a <laughs> hyena sipping style.
1: It's like the, the the realization is coming. It's annoyance and horror at the same yeah. time, right? Yeah. Uh, but that it, that melts away eventually into affection.
2: It melts away into affection um, and and also a swarm of sharks as, sh- right, as sharks we, rear their heads in the right. melted we waters. Defend,
1: we defend each other from them. Yes. And it's like a it's a brotherly triumph. Kind of. A-
2: it is. Yeah.
1: If you're a business owner, you don't need us to tell you that running a business is tough, uh, but you might be making it harder on yourself than necessary. Don't let QuickBooks and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. So stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information you need when you need it, ditch the spreadsheets and all the old software you've outgrown. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more, everything you need all in one place instantaneously. Whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in revenue, uh, save time and money with NetSuite. Join the over 24,000 companies using NetSuite right now. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at NetSuite.com slash useful. Schedule your free product tour right now at NetSuite.com useful. NetSuite.com useful.
2: Looking for more weekly news and insight, Trish Regan, Emmy-nominated financial journalist, recently launched her brand new podcast called American Consequences. Each week, Trish brings you news from across the globe, including interviews from the biggest names in finance and politics. She tackled the Fed, the Capitol, and even the GameStop frenzy with experts like Stephen Moore and the Wolf of Wall Street himself, Jordan Belfort. With exclusive interviews and her signature Trish Regan insight, the American Consequences podcast takes a look inside finance and politics like nowhere else. American Consequences with Trish Regan is available at americanconsequences.com/podcast and anywhere you listen to podcasts.
1: All right, so our guest this week uh, is uh, someone you're familiar with. Uh, who has, is a friend of show who has been on, uh, many times before Glenn Greenwald and we're having him on to <laughs> discuss there, look, there are lots of important things that are happening in the world. Uh, we've decided to, uh, ignore most of them and instead talk about, um, some, some rather involved and humorous controversies that are going on in the media world and that, um, you know i think glenn is a is a good person to help us uh, gloat about so uh mm-hmm. and and also to dissect seriously because there are a few serious right. angles to it uh, right katie is yes. there anything else i'm
2: forgetting well no uh, i mean coming full circle he uh, he runs a um an animal shelter so you know he is uh, all about the animals
1: that's right mostly right. the dogs
2: which we like
1: uh, anyway so without without further ado let's talk to uh pulitzer prize winner uh glenn Greenwald. Glenn, thanks for coming back on. It's always good to be here. I feel like I'm starting to ascend
5: to co-host status, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you're the you're in the inner circle. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah.
5: Uh, definitely a friend of the podcast. I think oh, that my FOS. status FOS. is big, big yeah. FOS, big time FOS. I
2: think you're right, the most frequent. I think we, this is your fourth appearance, making yeah, you, you knocking you, everyone else out. Really?
1: Yeah, you lapped somebody. I forget who that is, but uh, anyway, what, what's tattletale journalism, Glenn? You, you had a great. Uh, piece last week, which uh, ruffled a lot of feathers as usual. But uh, can you talk a little bit about that? So for me,
5: you know, my ideas of journalism were defined by my experiences when I was a kid. I was incredibly obsessed with two journalistic stories in particular, one of which was All the President's Men. I watched the film a hundred times. I was obsessed with the book when I was like eight or nine. I used to like study the glossary at the front of the book about who everybody was and you know, to the extent that my eight, and nine year old brain could process it. I mean, it was an incredibly compelling drama because it was about, you know, just talking now the kind of fictional narrative that was presented these, you know, intrepid, you know, kind of outsiders who took on the most powerful forces in the world and exposed high level corruption and lying and took them down. And then the other story that was equally compelling for me was the Pentagon Papers and the role that Daniel Ellsberg played in that in partnership with the New York Times, where he risked his liberty and his life to expose systemic lying on the part of the Pentagon about the Vietnam War over the course of many years and almost went to prison for life, would have had the Nixon administration not gotten caught engaging in misconduct. So for me, journalism, and then when I started Gradually and reluctantly thinking myself as one always meant using the techniques of reporting, of analysis, of revelation to take on power centers and to reveal serious malfeasance and corruption on the part of the most powerful in the society. That's for me what journalism is about, the things I'm proudest of in my career are obviously like the Snowden story where we did that, the work we did in Brazil where we did that, um, some of the exposés I've done on the animal agriculture industry, and the journalism I respect most has that as its core hallmark. So much of modern journalism over the last five to 10 years, kind of with the advent of digital journalism, is exactly the opposite of that. It has nothing to do with confronting power centers or about exposing serious corruption. It's often devoted to humiliating and destroying the lives of people who don't wield much power. Um, They don't think the CIA or the Pentagon or Wall Street or Silicon Valley are power centers. They think like old ladies in Florida who unwittingly post, you know, events on their Facebook page, supposedly sponsored by or engineered by the Russians are the ones you go and bravely confront on their front lawn or, you know, like obscure citizens who, post conspiratorial memes or on 4chan or whatever. These are the people that they like really want to go and confront not any like real power centers but just like ordinary people who have thoughts that are different than theirs. Or um, to the extent that they do want to go confront powerful people and the incident that precipitated that article about title journalism was about a New York Times reporter or tech reporter Taylor Lorenz who was infiltrating this new app called Clubhouse. That is used by a lot of silicon valley people and increasingly celebrities and media personalities to talk in a more or less quasi-private way okay fair enough like obviously a silicon valley billionaire is somebody who's part of a real power center you should be investigating him but she didn't go into clubhouse to expose say antitrust violations or monopolistic behavior or labor abuses she went in to go to catch him saying a bad word and got so excited when she heard the word retarded or retard in connection with the GameStop Reddit controversy, which is the word that they use to describe themselves. And she ran onto Twitter and falsely accused someone, Mark Andreessen, the Silicon Valley billionaire who founded Netscape, of having, in her words, said the R-word slur. And it was completely false. He actually wasn't the person who said that. She wrongly identified the person who did. But to me, that was title-tale journalism. It's like either focusing on people who don't have real power at the expense of those who do, or as in this case, trying to harm them through the most trivial, infantile adolescent transgressions rather than doing the real dangerous and important and intrepid work to expose serious wrongdoing by them.
2: Well, I just thought it was interesting that in this case, it was like she accused someone of saying the word retard or retarded, said, attributed it to the wrong person, didn't give the context right because the person was using was it happened to be a woman um, who was quoting the way that the reddit guys refer to themselves um and yeah,
1: what, what's what's the quote again we can stay retarded longer than than you can
5: yeah she not only like vilified the wrong person who said it but also posted the photos of the other people who were in the room because they were guilty of not objecting silence but the i silence think is like, complicity right so i think you know So. I, you know, I wrote, I covered the Reddit GameStop uh, controversy. I was very interested in. I know Matt reported on it as well. I believe you talked about it on your show too, Katie. So one of their battle cries was we can stay retarded longer than you can stay solvent, meaning like we can keep stupidly inflating the price of the stock for as long as we want, which you consider stupid and retarded. They were not like using it maliciously. They were using it ironically. Longer than you can stay solvent, meaning longer than you can maintain your short positions and get out of them. But the that the reference that that Taylor jumped out of her desk to go to report to the teacher was not that. It was the fact that someone in the course of discussing this Reddit GameStop episode simply reported truthfully that they referred to themselves as as waging a retard revolution. They quoted right the actual phrase used by the redditors no they didn't use it as a slur they didn't use it to refer to people who were cognitively impaired they simply described exactly the phrase that was used by the people who
1: they were gathered to discuss so there isn't even an underlying like moral or ethical offense here right they're just it's 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 just strictly a gotcha exercise to well it could
2: have been maybe she wanted them to say um, they refer to themselves as the trigger warning, R word revolution. That's what <laughs> that's what was you should required. Have said, yeah.
5: yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, look, this is really easy to mock, but I think there's something really odious going on here and it connects to what I'm sure you guys have talked about, or we will talk about, which are the firing, which is the firing of the New York times reporter Don McNeil for having used yeah. the N word in a context that everybody acknowledges was non malicious and not even racist perhaps inappropriate, but he was doing it to reference a specific comment that was made that used that word in order to try and answer a question that had been asked about him about what was the proper recrimination. And the African-American editor-in-chief of the New York Times investigated that incident when it resurfaced and said, look, I don't think it was the right thing to do, but given that he had no malicious intent, this is not a firing offense. We've spoken to him, we've taken some action, but that's all there is to it. And 150 New York Times newsroom employees wrote in a letter complaining, wanting their colleague more aggressively punished than management had decided. Imagine they're in a union demanding that a fellow union member be punished more severely by management than management had decided what was warranted. And their argument was intent does not matter. Intent doesn't matter that, that the N-word under no circumstances can it be uttered. No, even if you're giving a class right. on racial slurs and trying to tell people what they cannot say, or you're a history professor, I'll give you a really interesting example. Um, the New York Times yesterday published an article in light of the impeachment trial of President Trump talking about historically what has constituted incitement to violence mm. versus what is protected speech. And the landmark Supreme Court case that defined the contours of uh, that question was Brandenburg versus Ohio, which was a 1967 Supreme Court case where a KKK leader stood up and threatened white politicians with violence and vengeance. But in the course of his speech, he also used the N-word to refer to black people. And obviously the, the Supreme Court justices, eight out of nine of whom were white, including the one who wrote the opinion, quoted him saying what he said, including the N word, because they had to, but they didn't call it the N word. They actually wrote the word out. (laughs) They talked about that in oral arguments. They used it there too, because they had to, they had to understand what he actually said to decide whether it was constitutionally protected speech. The New York times, when they went to describe this case, Brandenburg to their readers said, this KKK leader stood up, and he invaded against African-Americans and then wrote comma, though he did not describe them that way. So we're now to, I mean, if 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 you're involved in that case and you're a white lawyer or a white judge and you go into court and you want to describe an oral argument, what Brandenburg held, or you want to, as a judge, apply Brandenburg to a set of facts, are you actually a racist now? If you quote that iconic 1967 Supreme Court case, the hallmark case that defines the the limits of the First Amendment. But this is the argument of The New York Times newsroom employees who wanted Don McNeil fired is that intent doesn't matter. And once you say intent doesn't matter, then it means that if you find somebody who is suffering from Down syndrome and you walk up to them and say you're a fucking retard, a Mm despicable act, that's indistinguishable in all ways, ethically, morally, then factually describing the sociology and anthropology of the Reddit subculture that led to the GameStop uh, stock price going up simply by describing it. They're they're indistinguishable acts under this completely anti-intellectual and corrupted rubric. But that was the framework under which people like Taylor Lorenz are functioning, that if a word is harmful to other people, it doesn't matter what the intent is of the person who used it.
1: When we've seen this spread also to you know some of the platforms are now cracking down on the use of raw footage, uh, right? By people like Ford Fisher or John Farina, who got the the much circulated footage of the Capitol riot uh, that's been taken down now. Uh, and the argument, I guess, I guess, is the same argument that by showing something um you're you're doing the same thing as expressing the the you're endorsing it it, right uh so how do you how how do you distinguish between reporting on something and actually just uh endorsing the idea it's going to be very difficult going forward if that's the standard won't it
5: yeah i mean i think this is one of the things that has gotten overlooked in the discussion of whatever you want to call it woke ideology cancel culture just like generally repressive discourse rules that have really accelerated over the last nine months. Oftentimes we focus on the ways in which the range of opinions that are are permissible to be expressed without suffering serious recriminations has narrowed greatly. So this week, for instance, Nathan Robinson, uh, the leftist editor of current affairs was fired from his job as a guardian columnist because of a tweet that he posted very whimsically and obviously satirically. Um, mocking U.S. policy toward Israel, about being too supportive and too loyal to, to Israel. He got fired because he expressed an opinion that the Guardian did not does not regard as within the realm of acceptable discourse. That's- he made it clear, by the, the tip-
2: way, in a follow-up tweet, just so people know, he made it clear that he was not even being serious because it's relevant because they accused it of being kind of fake news. But anyway, sorry.
5: Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, he he, he, like he it was so obvious that he was, you know, being satirical. But then he quickly added for those who are uh, satire impaired, like, obviously, I don't mean this literally. I'm just making this point. Um, So that's kind of a classic case of how we talk about it. Right. Um, Is that you express an opinion and then you get fired for having expressed the wrong opinion. I think the much more odious effect of all of this is the way in which it's corrupting actual journalism, reporting. So, for example, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter and Antifa protests over the summer, there was a lot of violence as part of those protests, a lot of property destruction. Obviously, you can debate validly whether property destruction and even violence was justified given the cause, whether the amount of the violence was really something we should be concerned with, um, whether it was the fault of the police primarily, who provoked it. Those are all legitimate debates, although we're not allowed to have those. But the thing that bothered me more is that there was almost no reporting on the effects of those protests in small communities and on small businesses by the New York Times, by the Washington Post, by CNN, by NBC, because they were petrified of doing fucking reporting, of just showing... Informing the public what the impact was of the m- most historically significant protest in five decades in the United States, because they were petrified that by doing the reporting, they would look like they were anti Black Lives Matter. And it took like Michael Tracy to get into his shitty, broken down little car, fueled literally by like PayPal donations, and go around with his crappy little cell phone and like interview weeping, you know, third generation immigrants about watching their dry cleaner store burn down to the ground or their first-generation immigrants who watch their pharmacy or their restaurant burn down to the ground, and then finally Nellie Bowers somehow f- fixed put into the newspaper like four months later, even though she's a tech reporter, some reporting about how a lot of people who had their businesses destroyed by those protests did not, in fact, have insurance to cover the damage. But this is what's happening over and over. It's not just that it's restricting how what opinions you can express. It's restricting what you're allowed to even tell the public about what is going on.
1: Is there also, I mean, in all this, there's all this energy being uh, directed at these issues like what McNeil said or or, uh, what went on in the clubhouse meeting, but it, it, it feels like it reflects a change in orientation. Like people just suddenly stopped at some point Worrying about what was going on in the NSA. I mean, just five years ago, uh, you know, the issues, or six years ago, you know, the, uh, the Snowden revelations, all of that occupied a lot of the concerns of mainstream journalists. And suddenly, they're not really interested in taking on those issues anymore. Is it because they have they feel like it's futile now? Or what? what's the- what's No, the no, no, there? no. The,
5: no, no, I don't think it is that. Um, because even if you believe, like, you know, I think there are causes that I work on that I believe are kind of futile in the sense that I don't expect there to be immediate reform or even like sufficient reform in my lifetime, but I still work on them because the passion that I have to expose them and to get other people to work on them to build a movement that one day might change. I don't think there's gonna be huge reform to factory farm farming, no matter how much abuse we we expose. Um, the NSA is still spying, you know, dramatically and radically, despite the, the stoner revelations. Um, I don't think it is that Matt. I think it's that, I think it's two things. Um, number one is kind of the more superficial explanation though. I think it's accurate, which is it's really hard to do investigative journalism about serious power centers They're, You know, they have a lot of power, which is why we refer to them as power centers. So they can impose punishment on you, on your reputation, on your work, on, they can sue you, it takes a lot of work because they're typically protected and shielded by PR people and propagandists and secrecy. And journalists who work online have a lot of pressure to generate retweets and you know clicks. And so to take that time to go, you know, there were times during the Snowden reporting when there'd be like six or eight weeks between stories because it took so much work for to work on. And I wasn't on Twitter tweeting that, I wasn't generating clicks for The Guardian the environment has changed a lot now. It's, it, it's just hard. Whereas like, you know, saying, hey, this guy used the race as that's super easy. People love it. They like get excited by it. So it's just like taking the easy path instead of the hard path. That's the superficial explanation. I think the more important and deeper explanation is that, and this is something that, you know, I think has not been sufficiently appreciated and, and maybe I haven't even paid enough attention to, to trying to identify and describe it is that during the Trump years, American politics changed so radically because Trump became the singular and sole prism through which people evaluated where they resided politically. So that if Bill Kristol was opposed to Trump, he meant that it meant that Bill Crystal was your ally, no matter what else he might think. He was opposed to Trump, and that's all that matters. So there were this whole series of institutions, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, the security state, that were deeply opposed to Trump. Russiagate came out of the CIA. All those guys like John Brennan and James Clapper and, and Michael Hayden you know, became among the leading denouncers of Trump. Robert Mueller, who was George Bush's FBI director after 9-11, obviously became a symbol of it as well. So it 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 took all of these journalists whose principal job is supposed to be to be adversarial to these institutions and it enmeshed them in these institutions because they looked at the CIA and the FBI and Wall Street and Silicon Valley as their partners. And they were their partners. They were working together for a common cause, which is to destroy Trump. And they were getting, you know, those those institutions were using these journalists to feed them the propaganda that they wanted disseminated, which is beneficial to those journalists. They had a very symbiotic relationship and they got trained, especially these younger journalists whose history begins in like 2015, whose knowledge of history begins in 2015, to view these institutions not just as benign, but as noble, as noble. So they have no interest at all in going and investigating Goldman Sachs or derivative traders or short sellers or hedge funds or monopolists in Silicon Valley, let alone the, when is, when do you ever hear on CNN or MSNBC or in the New York times op ed page, anyone ever talking about the evils of the CIA ever. It, it just, it's not even on their radar. It's not on their radar. They're obsessed with the proud boys and QAnon, and, you know, like meme makers on 4chan, those are the power centers that they care about. And all of the others are ones that they're in bed with and aligned with and captive to.
1: So basically, they've they've managed to kind of pull journalists inside the rope line and reorient them to, to, to look outward as opposed to, uh, you know, at the power centers, basically.
5: Yeah, I mean, but like, I think, you know, obviously, this has been a critique that predated Trump, right? Like, that was the story of the Iraq War, how they got the New York Times to be the leader, leading outlet convincing people to believe a a falsehood that sodom had had nuclear weapons or was pursuing nuclear weapons or had biological weapons it was how they got journalists to embed in the military so this has been an ongoing problem it's not like it, it it you know trump pioneered the problem of journalists and power centers being aligned but there was at least a significant chunk of journalists who were resistant to it, who were pushing back against it, right? There was always like the Barbara Stars and the David Ignatiuses and like the Andrew Ross Sorkins who were spokespeople for these factions. And then there were a lot of journalists who didn't want to be. Now there's so little effort to separate themselves or to identify themselves as the adversaries of those institutions. So it's not like it's a new problem. It's just accelerated greatly.
2: I I think that there's like a a conflating of what's good, like of morally judging something and and how to respond to it. Right. So I think a lot of people are like, well, 4chan does do terrible stuff. And there are people in 4chan who do and say terrible things. And I feel like just to be honest, like even now, I feel this pressure. I'm like, I have to get Glenn to condemn 4chan. And I'm not telling you that because I want you to. I'm just being honest about how I feel like the discussion has has what the discussion is like. Like, it's become a discussion of people um, kind of like rendering their moral judgment on something as opposed to what should be done about something. Do you, does that make sense at all? Yeah, Do you know, what you know look, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a Yeah, Journalism I mean, look, you know. Yeah.
5: This, this is always the argument that I was making during the the twice repeated idiocy with with the Bernie bro narrative yeah. that you guys have talked a lot about.
2: I know. The argument
5: was never that there were no adherents to Bernie Sanders who were abusive or misogynistic or racist or otherwise engaged. Of course there were. He had millions and millions of followers. Right. Of course, some of them were bad people or saying and doing bad things. The argument was every faction has people doing those kinds of things. It's not unique in any way to one faction. It's, right. it's you, you assemble enough human beings and some of them are gonna say and do bad things. So there is no social media platform in the, on the planet where you don't find racist um, or misogynistic or xenophobic or homophobic or transphobic sentiments where we're human beings, we're tribal, we have biases, we have prejudices. Sometimes it's being done for reasons unrelated to a, general, a genuine belief in those. Maybe people use that to vent their frustrations with their lives or their work or their family or whatever. So, of course, you can go on 4chan and find some hideous content just like you could have gone on Parlor and found hideous content there. The argument, though, is that if you're going to you know, use your journalistic platform to combat societal uh, pathologies, you have to make choices about what are the really threatening and menacing ones and what are the more trivial and insignificant ones. So it isn't that you know journalists who sit around all day trolling 4chan for like, racist memes are making things up or are talking about a problem that's non-existent. Of course, there are racist memes on 4chan. It'd be better for the society if we didn't have people posting those. But in the scheme of what 320 million Americans endure or seven or eight billion people on the planet endure, Those problems are a tiny little blip on the radar compared to neoliberalism and corporatism and militarism and the dominant prevailing ideology that has emerged in the West. And if you're spending extremely valuable journalistic resources and platforms like people have if they work for CNN or NBC or the New York Times on trivial problems and none of your time on real power centers That's the critique, not that those problems are non-existent or even that they're they're not actually problematic. They very well might be. It's just a very warped and bizarre choice to make in terms of priorities.
2: I think that's true. I do though think that like we can also just acknowledge that 4chan, it's not like incidental. Right. From what I what I know about 4chan, it's not like an incidentally like uh it's, a, it's not a bug, it's a feature, right? Isn't isn't a lot of what 4chan does is focus on these. And I, I think the issue isn't like the judgment of it. It's it's what should be done about it or the the focus on it to proportionate or disproportionate focus on. it. I mean, but- just in
5: the scheme of what societal problems exist in the United States and what affect people's lives. I think fortune is more a mirror reflecting what's happened rather than a cause kind of like I saw Donald Trump as a
2: sure, reflection ascension. of
5: societal pathologies, right. Rather than a, an right. a cause. Um, so I'm much more interested in trying to understand what is it about the United States and the way we're ordering our society that is causing so many people to be that disaffected that they want. I mean, the, the game of trying to like, control the internet to silence them yeah, or deny them a platform. It's both impossible and counterproductive. Um so, you know, I and I, I also have to say, you know, like for a lot, like there was a big overlap, a big overlap between the ethos on 4chan and the ethos on the subreddit thread Wall Street bets that led to the GameStop uh, uprising a lot of the memes were the same. A lot of the discourse was the same. It clearly came out of this kind of like disaffected, transgressive, right? There was very little left-wing politics there. Um, I mean, except to the extent that they're railing against the evils of Wall Street and the, you know, anger over the 2008 financial crisis, which should be a big part of left-wing politics, but as we were discussing, is isn't. But it wasn't, there was no, there was zero wokeism, so I think we just need to be careful that like sometimes a lot of what's being expressed on the internet is being expressed in terms of embittered irony anger over prevailing institutions that definitely does offend the ears of you know liberal sensibilities but doesn't necessarily come from a place of malice but comes from a place of Um, just feeling as though the society has shut its doors in your face.
2: Yeah, I guess. I mean, I I think that there's just two separate questions. One is like the actual content or a couple. One is what is the content like? The other is what is the cause? And the other one is what is to be done about it? Um, which I think get conflated, but I do think that just, I mean, just because of the way it functions, right? Like 4chan, it's like very, it's ephemeral, right? It's anonymous. That's obviously I would say going to lead to certain behavior that is not on, on Twitter. And I don't, I don't disagree with you about the kind of disproportionate um, superficial discussion about things that happen on 4chan. I'm just saying that I think we can do both things. And I actually think it's important to look at how, there you can like take disaffected behavior and disaffected feelings and and put them into two different directions. Right. And I always think about the Trump and Bernie. Right. Both of them were talking to disaffected people. And one was saying your right to be in pain and be angry and feel that and lean into it and blame Mexicans and Muslims. And one was saying your right to be uh, hurt and angry and don't blame Mexicans and Muslims, but do blame corporate greed. Um, So I just think it's an important discussion to have. And we can kind of acknowledge that we can acknowledge the content that happens in certain places without then using that to justify shutting it down, increasing like Internet uh, you know, content moderation.
1: Following up on what you were both saying. So, Glenn, you were talking about how there's all this anger uh, towards institutions and people feel like they're shut out. The press has now become part of that picture for a lot of people. Right. Like they, they see the media as part of the structure that's not listening to them, that that's uh, ignoring their concerns. Uh, and they become actually really on the front lines of what people are resentful towards. And I, I don't know, I feel like that's, that's part of the question of how do you cover uh, boards like 4chan or any of these sites uh, by ignoring what's, what the underlying issues are uh, you know, that lead to it. It just drives their resentment even more, it feels like to me. Uh, so there's kind of a paradox there for journalists.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, so just what I was going to, you know, talk about in response to Katie and point, and and point and and I think ties it really well into yours as well. So, like, look at that GameStop Reddit um, episode where recognizing all the complexities, that there's no clean David versus Goliath narrative, that there were big players on both sides, et cetera, et cetera whatever else is true, there was a movement that came out of something that was very much not like left cultural politics. It was a very different kind of brew that gave rise to it. And it was driven by righteous economic populism that populists on both the right and the left are comfortable expressing and have been advocating for years, which is the idea that there are these economic elites who rule Wall Street and use their economic wealth to control the government at the expense of everybody else. And it was basically just like a kind of, in one way, very focused and directed, but in another way, just kind of like... Um,
1: Emotion-driven, for sure.
5: Yeah, yeah very emotion-driven. Fuck you. They didn't think they were taking down Wall Street. They thought they were inflicting pain on a some randomly. Like, they didn't hate Melvin Capital in particular. That just happened to be the target that they were able to harm. And if you, you know, so it was extraordinary, right? That, like, whatever else is true, there were these group of, like, ordinary people buried in college debt, suffering from the 2008 financial crisis, using their $1,000 stimulus checks to fuck over billionaire hedge fund managers. Just to do it because they're angry about the injustice. An incredibly important uh story in my opinion, one that revealed not only the inequities that we so often overlook because we really talk about it for the reasons we were just talking about earlier, but also the capacity of citizens to band together to actually inflict harm on that, to destabilize that order. It was incredibly consequential and inspiring, in my opinion.
1: They, they also had to, not to interrupt, they also had to understand the mechanics of how they have been screwed over for, for so long in order to do it themselves. Right. You know what I mean? It was, they, it was, it was very sophisticated. It. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was very sophisticated. I mean, I
5: learned more from reading those Reddit boards about like that part of finance than I've learned like in years about... From reading the financial press, um, you're exactly right. It was a, it was a, that's one of the things that made it so impressive. Is it wasn't just you know Antifa gathering with like a thousand people to just burn down some like small business owner store. It was very sophisticated and 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 smart and like it did the work to really understand the damage that it, it could inflict. But if you read through the, the the board the the subreddit thread with a different perspective. What you're going to find are people saying all kinds of politically incorrect things. They're going to be saying things that get you canceled on college campuses, using retard with extreme frequency, making fun of their own autism and the autism of others, um, making jokes about women that are absolutely prohibited in good, decent, liberal circles. And you have to choose what you think is the more important component of that story. And a lot of the media coverage ended up being not about what Matt just described, this kind of like final like attempt to reckon with the wreckage of the 2008 financial crisis and the evil people who got away with it completely and still profit from it. But, Oh, I found some like stray, you know, racist comments on these Reddit threads. There's probably like a white supremacist movement behind this. And that's what's done constantly is at the expense of the much more significant difficult but important storyline of ordinary people destabilizing the hedge fund hierarchy. Instead, you just grab some some Reddit comments, throw it up or Telegram comments, throw it up online. They're racist. They get people's emotions high. And suddenly you've discredited all of the suffering and all of the deprivation that has motivated this all to happen in the first place and of course as Matt then says those people feel that rightly that the media is one of the arms that is oppressing them
1: i was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about the <laughs> it doesn't sound like it's uh it's important but it, it felt to me very <laughs> consequential the andrea mitchell talking um, about uh ted cruz
2: oh yeah she, can she someone bl- break this down
1: yeah so so ted cruz quoted. Shakespeare on, the, uh, during the Im- impeachment hearing. Yeah. Just the quote was, um,
5: it is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That was, he quoted that to describe how he viewed impeachment.
1: Right. So, so Andrew no Mitchell then goes on Twitter and blasts him, um, for not, not knowing for uh, mistakenly th- thinking that it was Shakespeare and not realizing that it was, uh, William Faulkner, who of course wrote a novel, the sound and the fury that was, you know, based on that quote from Shakespeare. And then it, it, that was silly and that was a mistake and it happens. But the, the, the funnier thing was that she, she was suddenly sort of subtweeted by all of the hashtag resistance all stars from, you know, Jennifer Rubin on uh, saying basically cheerleading this comment. And I, I just thought it was representative of, you know, a lot of people look at these sort of uh, elite journalistic uh, celebrities not just as as uh, people who ignore them or um, are snobs, but also people who just aren't that smart and are often often wrong. And when they when episodes like that just seem to underscore that that whole uh, dynamic, I don't know. I was wondering what you thought about that. Yeah. You know, obviously,
5: on the one hand, Andrea Mitchell mistaking um, a quote, misattributing a quote that was written by Shakespeare to Faulkner is a completely trivial matter completely but she thought it was important enough to show everybody that Ted Cruz was an idiot, that he can't even like properly quote Shakespeare. And the reason why she did that is because embedded in the sense of liberal superiority is this idea that conservatives are imbeciles. They're uneducated, they're primitive, um, they're not sophisticates. And she knew exactly what she was doing. She's a smart woman. She's been around for decades. She's on MSNBC, a, a network watched almost exclusively by liberals. So she was trying to say like, hey, look at me and us. Aren't yeah. we the smart ones? We're illiterate. And these are illiterate idiots. They can't even quote Shakespeare. So it isn't that her mistake was important. What was important was the reason she thought it was worthwhile to use her platform to do it which is to reinforce the liberal idea that conservatives are uneducated cretins, that they're just kind of like Neanderthals. And conservatives know this. Conservatives know this. So, and then, and, and what was amazing was, as Matt said, was there are actually all these like blue check journalists who were replying to Andrea Mitchell saying like, yeah, can you believe what an imbecile Ted Cruz is? Like <laughs> realize, revealing that they too didn't know the difference between Faulkner and Shakespeare. And could gaining- Right. And like, it's fine. Like, I don't think it's a, it's like, you know, we, 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 or disqualifying, Yeah, it's, it's nothing like we study. Sh- I don't know the last time I read Shakespeare, it was like decades ago. I don't sit around reading yeah. Shakespeare. I don't pretend to, Um, you know, I probably read it last in college. So I don't think it's a big deal, but like they all had to feign that they too, of course, knew that Ted Cruz had made this mistake and it just revealed so much about not just the liberal mindset, but the way in which they try and humiliate conservatives all the time, and the fact that she just
2: got it completely—it's kind of like the Taylor Lorenz thing. It's yeah. like it wouldn't have mattered even if she got it right. But it, the fact that she got it wrong makes it that much more embarrassing or met, entitled, yeah. and shows. I mean, to me, it also speaks to just a lack of—and again, it's like okay, who? This doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, but it does speak to kind of like a casual disregard um, for even like bothering to do your homework when dismissing. And again, like I, I despise Ted Cruz. And the irony is that, like, this is just such good. Pe- it's it's great. Like she couldn't have done anything better for Ted Cruz than do this. Like, how great is it for Ted Cruz to be able to talk to, like point to an MSNBC uh, anchor, mocking him as an idiot and then also getting it wrong? And I would just like to point out that Ted Cruz like is uh, uh, part of what makes him dangerous, I would say, is he pretends to be a man of the people and the guy not that there's anything wrong inherently in this. But, you know, he went to Princeton undergrad and then he went to Harvard Law. And so she's even by doing that, she's like doing good PR for him in perpetuating the image he wants people to have of him. And also, I got to say that, you know, do you know what play he was in in law school? Do you guys know about this? Do you know what what drama he was in? Let's just say it's a play that leftists and liberals like. And it's a classic.
1: Death of a salesman.
2: No, but just similar but a desire? the Desire. No, go to Death of a Salesman. Think uh, history.
1: Uh, the Crucible.
2: Yep. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that up because I think it's he should get more credit as a thespian. But um, yeah, it's 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 gross that that whole episode is gross. Yeah.
1: Sir, could I just wrap this around for the last thing I want to ask? Because because it uh, the Andrea Mitchell thing, it feels like it's all part of the same. Just to bring it back to GameStop, it's the same attitude of we know better, we're the people who have the knowledge. Like when the GameStop thing happened, you had Andrew Ross Sorkin going on television saying, These people just don't understand how the markets work. If they really knew, they wouldn't do this. Whereas the reality was, what this story exposed was these people, the people who shorted this uh shorted gamestop were really sloppy didn't really know what they were doing and they're not any really any smarter really than all these amateurs online who are using the same tools to analyze the same stocks and just the the inability to recognize that that veil of intellectual superiority is being punctured all the time i just feel like they're they're constantly doing a disservice to um you know the image of the media I don't know. So
5: let me let me just tell you two quick stories that, I, mm-hmm. that are like for me kind of uh illustrative and were revealing when I when I experienced them. Uh, the first one is um my mother who passed away in late twenty uh twenty 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 nineteen. Um she worked until like the last day she died at this like company that sold uh, parts for like auto, for, for airplanes. So it was like a blue, it wasn't like, she didn't work in a factory, but she worked in like an office with the people who just like did the customer service for these people who, for the people who were buying the the parts to the uh, airplanes. And she loved her work. She like, you know, she was 76 when she died. She was in social security. She didn't need to work, but she wanted to work. She loved the people with whom she worked. She'd rather do that than sit at home. She used to tell me all the time how much fun they had. They would like talk about, argue about politics. And so one time I went and visited and she's like, Oh, you have to come in. You know, I want you to meet them all. And, you know, they watch you on TV and she wanted to show me off, but also she wanted me to meet her friends. So I went in, it was like this super diverse office, you know, like immigrants from Jamaica, African-Americans, Hispanics, cause it's South Florida, Jews, like Italians. And it was like raucous. And like, they started talking about politics and they started like m- making fun of each other using like, ethnic and religious humor that like took my breath away. was like, Oh my God, you can't say that. (laughs) But they were like that for them, it's just how they speak. Like they just, that's, they, they were friends with each other. They understood the context of it. They understood the intent behind it. And like, for my, like, you know, kind of ears that are constantly being shaped by elite political discourse and, and kind of confined by it. It was shocking to me, and it like made me realize right at that moment how removed these kind of cultural mores are that happen at the elite level from the people who they claim they're speaking for. And the other similar uh, episode that I had that was really eye opening was when the reality winner debacle at The Intercept happened. I happened to be in Milwaukee uh, where I was working on uh, a, a potential story that didn't pan out, and I was sitting at this like diner. Um, in like a suburb of Milwaukee, like a working class suburb. And next to me was this group of like six, I don't know, guys in their like their late 30s, or late 20s, early 30s. And they were on their phone and it was like, there was a big New York Times story on the reality Winner thing. And they started talking about it and they were saying, oh yeah, you know, like their claim is like the rush, there was a document showing the Russians hacked into the voting machine. And then they all started saying like, you know, it's just like, all this stuff is always anonymous. You just can't like figure out like who's interested is to claim this. There's never any evidence shown. I really don't know what to believe. And I was like, that is so much more rational and informed and sober and centered and thoughtful than anything that you can plug into on like professional political, and journalistic twitter at any moment like just being basically skeptical using common sense application they weren't believing it nor disbelieving it because they recognized the evidence was insufficient to do so that there might be and i just i just realized at the time that of course people who work in journalism and politics in DC would think that those people were utterly unqualified to speak about politics and yet in reality their native intelligence was so much greater
1: yeah and, and all these episodes kind of reveal that same thing it's uh it's amazing yeah um k do you have anything else
2: no now i'm all curious about the the arguments i mean the articles about uh we'll have to have you on for part two the articles about the property damage uh because i remember there being in the new york times before michael tracy took the the, the road there, were, there weren't
1: that many and there were also there were also definitely a lot of newsrooms where people who wanted to do those stories. It was kind of made clear to them that that wasn't a yeah. subject that was that, that uh, the editors find, wanted find, to pursue.
5: Exactly, find the one by Nellie Bowers, which was like the first. I'm not saying there was never any mention. Yeah, of Yeah, there's one major. by
2: Caitlin Dickerson.
5: Yeah, if I you don't find have insurance, yeah. If, if you find one by Nellie Bowers, there's one about how yeah, no, but what is that Caitlin Dickerson? The date on that story.
2: It is um, May 31st, 2020, and okay. Uh, and uh, Tracy's thing about not no discussion about it was July. Yeah, I mean,
5: like no discussion obviously doesn't mean like no one has ever heard a, a, a had syllable, right? It was like whether the coverage was sufficient. Right. The Nellie Bowers one was the first one that I remember being in the mainstream press that really like went and interviewed store owners and 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 small business owners whose property was destroyed, and the gap between what they lost and the coverage, and it was like at least a couple of months, if not even longer, after the protest unfolded. Um, so, you know, I think that, um, it's not, it's not zero, it never is zero, right? There's the the question is is whether the coverage is, 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 is proportional to the, the importance.
2: I also always, I mean, Matt and I disagreed about this, I think a little bit, but I, I also think that like, there's an important discussion to be had about, you know, property discussion, I mean, property destruction and like physical violence, which again, I think these things can be, you know.
1: Sure, but the you, but, you but still but have those to protest
5: movements had the state right. Yeah, but right. I think a lot a, of the way- A you have to cover it. A you have to cover yeah. it. And, and B, you do have to cover it, right? And then and then that way if you, so people can get a uh, an understanding of the impact of it, the magnitude of it. But then also there was a lot of physical violence as part of those protests. Also, there were police officers killed in those protests. There were protesters who were killed, there were Trump supporters who were killed. Um, there was a lot of violence in the protest over the summer, like violence to human beings, not just a property. Yeah,
2: I'm just saying that I think there's a problem with the, with the way some uh, journalists use that term to uh, without distinguishing between those two things.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a fair point. Yep. Glenn, thank you so much. Uh, the piece uh, is on Substack, obviously. Uh, you're at uh, Greenwell.substack.com. Is that right? I am uh, we're very it's in the same vicinity as Taibi.com, <laughs> as I understand. You, all right, everybody
5: should <laughs> check last it thing, out.
2: Last thing, can you yeah. just tell give us a 5-minute update about what's happening in Brazil with COVID and Lula and Bolsonaro? You know, really easy. Um
5: you know, it's it's a very complicated picture uh, because Bolsonaro's mismanagement of COVID And the corruption scandals that continue to engulf him and his family are out of control. But at the same time, his popularity has been kind of stable because there were there was legislation enacted by Congress that he opposed, but then took credit for that provided monthly payments to people to stay at home during the pandemic, which they obviously were happy about and kind of gives you a, a sense of what matters in politics. Those payments have now run out and he doesn't want to. Uh renew them on top of which he's been like foot dragging. He doesn't even think the vaccine is worth paying for. So I think there's something like 10% of COVID deaths worldwide are in Brazil, but 3% of the people vaccinated are in Brazil. So his popularity is now really starting to to plummet at the same time um, in the elections for house speaker and president of the Senate that just happened. His allies took control of, of both houses of Congress, which, probably will be advantageous to him as he gears up to run for reelection in 2022. And then as far as Lula and the reporting we did, um, the Supreme Court actually just ordered that Lula's lawyers have to have access to the entire archive, not just the archive that we got, but there's a bigger part of the archive that the sources had that the police apprehended when they arrested them huh. um and a lot of that stuff is starting to leak out stuff that we didn't have that's even more damaging to those prosecutors who put lula in prison that enabled Bolsonaro to win so that scandal is kind of getting a second life now with this material
1: wow, wow. all right is yeah. uh, are you are you uh, are you working on that or is that something that uh
5: no, I mean, it's not, you know, we don't have like exclusive access to that part of the archive. Um, so lots of reporters are getting it in drips and drabs and, and doing that reporting, which, you know, I think is actually better. It'll maximize the impact if it's not just me doing that yeah. same reporting again. Right. right, excellent.
2: Did Lula thank you? Did he call you? I was like, oh, my God!
5: I spoke to him the night that he got out of prison um, and he bored my book, which is coming out on April 6th. I guess I should start whoring my book out. Definitely. Um, and uh, what's it called? so, yeah, he's been... It's called, I think it's called, it's called Securing Democracy, my battle to protect press freedom in Bolsonaro's Brazil. Something very close to that. Wow. Excellent, excellent. All right, It just well, tells uh, the story of of what happened.
2: Well, you're gonna get that huge uh, useful idiots bump. And then if you come on the Katie Albers show, it's gonna be like over the moon bump. So you're exactly. welcome in advance. Exactly.
5: Everyone knows that. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Katie. All right. Thanks, thank a lot, you, Matt. Good talking right, to you guys. Right. Bye.
2: So you know we are so appreciative of our fans and our viewers um, and listeners, and of course we would like to remind you that you can and must—not must—you you can become subscribers of this show at YouTube. And to do that, you just hit subscribe and then you hit the bell. Um, also, rate and review us on on um, iTunes. You know, just throw a, a review in there, say something good throw us some stars. Our goal is to bring you guys a great show. But right before that goal, before that goal is to beat Pod Save America uh, on the rating. By the way,
1: America doesn't need to be saved anymore.
2: Yeah, they are out of business. Yeah, right. Yeah. So
1: the, it, the the show should really be called Pod Preserve America.
2: Yes. Pod made America great again already. Right. <laughs> Pod, Pod M- made America great. A.G.A.A. <laughs>
1: Podmaga. Yeah.
2: Podmaga, yeah. It sounds like um,
1: a sounds like a Celtic town. It does, right? right? Yeah. Podmaga.
2: Yeah. <laughs> sounds like a Celtic, some kind of Celtic Gaelic song, right? Um, and thanks to Sheer Mag for the great intro outro song, um, and also thanks to Dan Halperin, our producer. <laughs>